The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. The Apostle Paul gave us the inspiring imagery of running a good race in life, much as these 3,000 participants in the annual Jerusalem Marathon. Lots of things are happening these days in Israel's ancient capital, and we're here with the Jerusalem Channel to keep you informed of the fast-paced events and news through our daily website updates and regular video reports and biblical teachings. To continue this viewer-supported ministry, we need your help. Please become a part of the Jerusalem Channel by donating. Just click the Donate button on our website to give by credit or debit card. You can also donate by check to our U.S. address or our U.K. post office box. We're here to anticipate that one day soon we'll witness thousands running joyfully through the streets of the Holy City to welcome King Messiah. If you were alive 70 or more years ago, you would have been astonished if I had said the ancient nation of Israel would be restored and millions of Jews from all over the world would come and settle the land again. But in our generation, especially since the significant year 1948, it doesn't take much imagination to envision Israel's national salvation because we see Bible prophecy fulfilled every day in some way or other in the rebirth of the modern state of Israel. To God be the glory for what He's accomplished already, but what I anticipate in the near future is going to be even more dramatic to say the least. I'm Christine Dark. I want to explore with you the prophetic and forthcoming prophecies found in the Bible in the book of Zechariah, which to me is one of the clearest timelines of all the Hebrew scriptures concerning the end times. The prophet Zechariah prophesied about both the first and second comings of the Messiah. The last chapters of the book, chapters 12, 13, and 14, especially describe events related to the Messiah's second coming. Now, the book of Zechariah is highly important prophetically because it so clearly and compactly describes end-time events. Chapter 12 is futuristic, although I must say we're already beginning to see chapter 12 unfold before our eyes concerning the outpouring of the Spirit in Jerusalem. Many times in the various quarters of the old city of Jerusalem, we've experienced an open heaven with genuine signs and wonders. Now, chapter 12 begins with a biblical expression, the burden of the word of the Lord. Why the word burden? Well, God's word is heavy, and intercessors know that it's a literal burden. 
God's word, especially to Israel, is a big burden. This expression, the burden of the Lord, was often used by the prophets because the word of God is not a light matter. It's the most weighty matter for all men and all nations to consider. Now, Zechariah 12 begins, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. You see, this word is about Israel. It's not about the church or anything else. This is the burden of the Lord for his people Israel, not the church. God has a physical Israel, and sooner or later the nations will have to come to terms with God's Israel. The Lord says what he means and means what he says. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Jerusalem, says the Lord, who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. That's a grand sweeping statement, and God is reminding us of his exceeding greatness. The creator of the universe is making these revelations about Israel's future, and he's alerting us to sit up and take notice. And verse 2 is so very current. He says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about, when they shall be in the siege, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. So God's saying that when the nations attack Judah and Jerusalem, he's going to retaliate by making Jerusalem an intoxicating cup to all of the nations. The nations will behave irrationally like a staggering drunk when they try to imbibe of Jerusalem, when they try greedily to guzzle down this city, God's unique city for themselves. So God gives us this metaphor. Jerusalem, he says, is a cup that will make the nations staggering drunk, reeling out of control and irrational. It's like they can't think straight when it comes to Jerusalem, and it's happening right now. The cup of trembling is a figure of speech similar to the awful cup described in the book of Revelation in chapter 17 where the world's religious and political system is described as mystery Babylon, represented by a gaudy harlot holding a golden cup in her hand. And she's drunk. It's really sick. She's drunk on the blood of the martyrs. Well, in Zechariah 12:2, the Hebrew word for cup that makes the nations drunk is saf, which really means a basin or a bowl. The usual Hebrew word for cup is kos. But here in Zechariah 12 too, God says this end time cup will be a big cup like a basin because it's a bowl from which all the peoples will drink a stupefying potion. And it's amazing how the Holy Scriptures interpret themselves because over in Psalms, in Psalm 75 verse 8, we're informed that the Lord holds a cup in his hand and it's full of foaming wine mixed with spices and he pours out the wine in judgment and all the wicked of the earth must drink it to the dregs. God foresaw a day when the diaspora, when the Jews would return to their own country and be restored to their own land as we've surely seen come to pass. But also, 
Zechariah says Jerusalem and Judah will be attacked by a combination of many nations. Some of the Bible commentaries written prior to the reestablishment of the state of Israel correctly foresaw that Zechariah 12 refers to the time when the Jews would begin to collect themselves and resettle in their ancient possessions and that their political enterprise would create jealousy and aggression against the Jewish people. So now let's continue in verse 3 of Zechariah 12. The creator of the universe uses another metaphor for Jerusalem. This time God compares Jerusalem to a stone, Evan in Hebrew. And in that day will come to pass, he says, that I will make Jerusalem a heavy, burdensome stone for all people. And all who burden themselves, all who try to lift it, who try to move it or heave it away, God says shall severely injure themselves. They'll be cut in pieces, even though all the people of the earth be gathered together against Jerusalem. That's powerful. And one of my prayer mentors in Jerusalem, Lance Lambert of Blessed Memory, could hardly preach a sermon without mentioning this verse. Lance said this metaphor depicts the nations rupturing themselves by trying to heave away the immovable rock that's Jerusalem. And let me stop here and ask, why is Jerusalem so heavy? And the answer is, because God himself is sitting in Jerusalem. That's why. Jerusalem is the one city where God has decided to place his name and his divine presence. And his presence is so heavy in Jerusalem. His presence in Jerusalem is almost tangible. And anybody who is halfway spiritual recognizes this atmosphere when they visit the holy city of God. You know, the Hebrew word kavod, glory, also means heavy. I've spoken of this many times. God's presence is too heavy for Jerusalem to be moved. And the Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 125 testifies, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be removed, but remains forever. From the days of Melchizedek, king of Salem, in the book of Genesis, right up to our day, Jerusalem has never been moved. Jerusalem has outsurvived the cities of the world. And God declares in Zechariah 12:3 that Jerusalem is an immovable rock. And here's an illustration. Recently, my team and I were on a mission in the ancient nation of Georgia and we visited the burial site of the woman apostle named St. Nino. After the original apostles visited Georgia and evangelized there, St. Nino evangelized Georgia in the third century. And she was known as the enlightener of that nation. At the end of her life, she died in the remote mountains of Georgia. And when the people tried to move her coffin to bury her in a more accessible place, her coffin simply couldn't be lifted, even when 200 men tried to move it. As the legend goes, that was the Lord's way of saying that St. Nino's resting place couldn't be moved. 
And so God made her coffin immovable. Well, when it comes to Jerusalem, there's no use trying to move God. He won't budge when it comes to Jerusalem and his ancient chosen people, the Jews. So now let's pick up with verse 8 of Zechariah 12. It says, In that day, and that's a Bible idiom for the last days, in that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, even as the angel of the Lord. So what a glorious promise this is. God's people, the Jews, who were despised and beaten down as they wandered from nation to nation with bent over backs, these same people are going to stand tall and once again be supernaturally empowered by the Lord in much the same way that King David and his mighty men were superheroes able to defeat wild animals, giants, and very fierce foes. This verse says the Jews will be so victorious that they'll not only fight like the great warrior David, but like God himself. That's power. So this is going to be a very supernatural end time move. Let's look at the next verse. And it shall come to pass in that day, God says, that I'll seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This speaks of the day of Jerusalem's defense and deliverance, a soon coming glorious day when God will fight and intervene for the salvation of his people. And now here comes this amazing verse 10 of Zechariah 12, a verse that's my spiritual address in Jerusalem. God promises gloriously, and I will pour on the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And what is the result of this great outpouring of the Holy Spirit? The result is a tremendous outpouring of prayer and repentance amongst the people so that they shall look upon me, God says, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. These verses are happening progressively in our lifetime. The salvation of Israel is not an abstract idea, but it's happening and it's happening before our very eyes. And I'm an eyewitness. If we lived a hundred years ago, we would at least have by then seen the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour Declaration confirms support from the British government for the establishment of a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, a territory that's biblical Eretz Israel, the land of Israel in the Bible. Back in 1917, the Balfour Declaration would have been a big sign of the times a major clue that God was up to something big concerning the restoration and salvation of his ancient people, Israel. But today, we live on the other side of 1917 and 1948 when the Jewish state was miraculously reborn in a single day. 
And we also live on the other side of the Six-Day War in June of 1967, when the Jewish people actually recaptured the whole of their capital, containing all of the holy sites, their ancient capital, Jerusalem. After all this time and all the dust has settled, Jerusalem has remained at her place, waiting for end-time prophecy to be fulfilled. Bible prophecy concerning Israel is no longer obscure, and it's certainly not obscure for those who have anointed eyes to see and who know this word. Since the horrific Holocaust, when all seemed lost for the Jewish people, the new and tiny state of Israel arose out of the ashes, indestructible, despite the fact that Israel is surrounded by a sea of enemies and hostile nations that have tried to drown the ancient but new Jewish enterprise known as the State of Israel. In fact, resilient Israel has been called the mystery of history. And that's because the New Testament itself labels Israel as a mystery. But God is continuing in our generation to unravel this great mystery because Israel is once again an established fact. Unlike what many churches promote, the heretical idea of replacement theology, God is surely not finished with Israel. In fact, he's now in the process of setting the stage for Israel's national salvation. But unbelievably to me, many still don't see it. Great end time events are happening unnoticed by most of the world and many in the churches are blind to it. I was shocked recently to learn that a pastor who has an international radio ministry stated that Israel is not a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Like many in the churches, this pastor has a blind spot. Unfortunately, he debunked Israel because he said Israel was founded by secular men. He couldn't see that God works sometimes through imperfect men. And doesn't this pastor comprehend that this word of God says that they would come back as secular people in unbelief? You see, God revealed in many Bible prophecies that he would bring back the Jewish people to their own land, first of all, in a state of exhaustion and unbelief. And it would only be when they were resettled in their land that he would revive them and sprinkle clean water upon them. So any preacher who says that present-day Israel is not a fulfillment of Bible prophecy has a limited view of God's ways. God is far from finished with Israel. His divine fingerprints are all over this state. Despite the fact that the founders of the modern state of Israel were not particularly religious, it's no accident that the founders decided to call their land Israel. And God has set in the near future for Israel a day of deliverance, a national revival. God has repeatedly foretold the stages of Israel's renaissance, and he told it in the Bible. Not only do we see this renaissance in Zechariah chapter 12, but also in Zechariah 8:19. In Zechariah 8, 19, an amazing verse, the Lord predicted that the Jewish fast days of mourning and afflicting one's souls would cease. 
and the fast days will be changed into days of feasting and rejoicing. So the Jewish people aren't destined always to fast and to mourn. Their day of redemption is fast approaching. In amazing detail, Israel's rejection and mistreatment of the true shepherd, the Messiah, was foretold in Zechariah chapter 11. The price of the Lord's betrayal was prophesied. The prophet throws 30 pieces of silver to a potter at the house of the Lord. This prophetic action foreshadowed the bargain that Jesus' betrayer, Judas, made to betray the Messiah. In the New Testament, the tainted blood money was used to purchase a potter's field where Jesus' betrayer, Judas, hung himself. This prophecy in Zechariah 11, right before the revival chapter of Zechariah 12, this prophecy in Zechariah 11 about the price and the potter all tragically came to pass. However, the good news in Zechariah 12, 13, and 14 is that the Messiah of Israel is no longer rejected by Israel, but he's received with open arms and with many anguished tears of repentance at the time of the Lord's second coming. In fact, in chapters 12, 13, and 14, we have a sequence of end-time events, sort of a skeleton timeline succinctly laid out. First of all, we see a confederacy of nations coming against Jerusalem, and I ask you, is this happening? You know it's happening because of the relentless wars fought against Israel and the disproportionate United Nations resolutions against Israel. Then in these chapters, we see God's people supernaturally empowered by the Lord in much the same way that King David and his mighty men were empowered. In the short time since Israel's rebirth, its army and military intelligence have become among the world's strongest and most powerful. Also in these final chapters of Zechariah are prophetic scenes of the deep national repentance of Israel brought about by an outpouring of the Spirit of God in the last days. Then the Messiah is revealed by the Spirit of Revelation as one whom they previously rejected. Also prophesied is a national day of atonement and the opening of a fountain for the cleansing of sin. Additionally, we're told that the land will be purged of idolatry and false prophets and the time of Jacob's trouble is described. God says, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name, God says, and I will answer them. And in the final chapter, Zechariah 14, there are glorious prophecies of the Messiah's second coming. His feet shall stand, it says, on the Mount of Olives. The messianic kingdom is established finally, and the Lord becomes king over all the earth. In this final chapter 14, we preview glorious glimpses into the future messianic kingdom. When the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles takes place every year and the nations come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, finally, Israel is restored and becomes a holy nation. 
Well, in many ways, the practicing Jews of Israel are preparing for the coming of the Messiah now, and Scripture indicates they'll be surprised by his identity. Even the Israeli police commissioner recently announced in the news that the police will play a very important role of crowd control when the Messiah arrives. And one of the rabbis in charge of King David's tomb on Mount Zion in Jerusalem has copied a Torah scroll that he wants to present to the Messiah as a special welcome gift upon his arrival. And since King David's tomb, the burial place of the Messiah's ancestor, is located on Mount Zion, the rabbi is uniquely positioned, he believes, to present the Torah to the Messiah. Well, the revival starts in Zechariah verse 10 of chapter 12. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, God says, the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they will look upon me whom they have pierced and mourn for him. Can you see the Trinity in this verse? I do. Number one, God the Father is speaking, yet in the same sentence he says he will pour the Spirit. And then they, the Jewish people, will look upon me whom they have pierced. That's Jesus, Yeshua. All three persons of the Godhead are included in this extraordinary verse. The immediate consequences of this outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon Israel is a spirit of prayer, a spirit of grace and deep repentance exceptional mourning, so much so that people sit apart separately. The purpose of this voluntary, solitary confinement is for deep soul searching. God reveals himself as their reconciled father and friend because he outpours upon them the spirit of grace. Hallelujah. So now to wrap up everything, I want to mention a very precious, pivotal verse in Zechariah chapter 13. It opens like this. On that day, there will be a fountain open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. This supernatural fountain was open when Jesus died and made atonement nearly 2,000 years ago. A great old hymn goes like this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. My question to you is this. Have you been to the cross? Have you visited that holy fountain drawn from Emmanuel's veins? Emmanuel is one of the many Bible names of the Messiah. Emmanuel means God with us. You see, God was in Jesus. He was with us, reconciling the world to himself by the shed blood of Jesus, the Lamb of God. So I want to invite you right now to be plunged beneath that crimson flood by faith, that crimson flood of Jesus' blood, to be cleansed of all guilty stains. I've been to that fountain. And the good news is it's open for all nations, for all peoples. There's no discrimination at that fountain. There's no discrimination at the cross. Jesus died for all. And how shall we escape 
if we neglect so great and free a salvation. You see, the Lord's salvation is a free offer, but it must be accepted. It mustn't be put off indefinitely. In fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus testified at least five times, Behold, I am coming soon. And when he comes, you won't have time to get ready. You'll have to be ready. And how can you be ready? Well, it's important not to delay your surrender to the Lord. And so we just make a point right now to surrender ourselves so that when he appears, he comes as our savior and not as our judge. Because it's impossible to save yourself and the church can't even save you. Only the savior saves you. So this is the key. Romans 10:9 says that if you're willing to declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, in the meantime, keep looking up and keep doing the exploits of the Lord. And we'd like to invite you to stay in touch and share with us through social media and our website at exploits.tv, where you can click online to receive our electronic newsletter, Exploits, and where all of our videos are available at any time. We also post prayer points twice a week at our website that will help you to be an effective intercessor and watchman on the walls. And so always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Until next time, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom.